Hello and welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. This is Ned Buskirk, your host for this creatively conscious mortality audio experience. Let's just hop into it. Let's jump in the jammies, pounce into the pants. <laughs> I don't know why I got a visual of a cart, the cartoon, you know, when like some wolf cartoon. I don't know from growing up where the wolf jumps out of bed and lands in its pants. Uh, that's a podcast pants. Put your podcast pants on, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hold on. It's going to be a wild, emotionally triggering <laughs> ride. Oh, I'm keeping this. I'm just going to leave it. This is the intro. I'm not re-recording it. That's what I'm going to do. Welcome Welcome. So glad to be recording this intro for another episode. And this one is, again, a meaningful one for me personally. And let's see if I can connect kind of per usual what I've been going through with our work and how it it lands in this conversation. Yesterday in San Quentin, working with the community, the peer support suicide prevention community, there was this feeling when I was welcoming, inviting everybody into the space like I do every week. I don't think I'm I'm like great at like meditations or um <laughs> I don't know, your usual yoga instructor or your meditation teachers. Uh here we're gonna do this. Welcome, drop into your body. Here's all the things to do to get here. But I like the creative uh, moment of that invitation. And usually I do it by connecting how I'm doing for sure, how I'm feeling, what's on my mind and in my heart. And yesterday, something that I'm feeling that does connect to the conversation with the guest in this episode, Rabbi Steve Leader, is this idea of, for me yesterday, articulated in telling these guys coming into this suicide prevention, community support conversation, to show up with all their voices. And I mean that in and out of my own experience, feeling like someone who wants to help people and does whatever I can to do that and facilitate deep listening space, but also offer advice and wisdom and knowing if, it, if there's room for it, paying attention for that, listening deeply enough to be able to get to that. And I'm also going through my own stuff. There's a part of me and and a voice in me that is is lost and maybe childlike and 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 hurting and uncertain. And I can see with the right kind of self-care and a good practice even daily, I can hear the other voice too, another voice that's that's understanding and caring deeply with with experience and knowing out of out of my life. And so I have both. I have the like unstable and hurting and I have the, it's okay. And to be able to invite both those voices in like they need to be there. And this idea I articulated with the community in San Quentin yesterday, this group, I told them, you need to understand your hurt and that voice in you to be able to do anything for anyone else that's hurting. And 
what I really appreciate about Rabbi Steve Leader, and, and something we'll touch on throughout this conversation, it's in his books, if you get for You When I Am Gone and The Beauty of What Remains, you can, you'll find it in there. But this idea that he is not just a rabbi, there are other ways that he shows up. And he's honest about the difficulty of being alive and doing this work, being a rabbi, and the times when he needs to pay attention to one voice and and maybe like rest easy on the other voices and then like lean back into uh, those other voices sometimes. It just depends like where we're at, but that we know our whole full showing up and really in a way accepting how we are, the ways we are. And knowing that the true authenticity of that being in the world is how we can be fully and holy here for others. Holy, holy, whole, holy, whole. So I invite you to listen today to this episode from that place. Rabbi Steve Leader is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. After receiving his degree in writing and graduating cum laude from Northwestern University and spending time studying at Trinity College, Oxford University, Leader received a master's degree in Hebrew letters in 1986 and rabbinical ordination in 1987 from Hebrew Union College. He is the author of five books, The Extraordinary Nature of Ordinary Things, More Money Than God, Living a Rich Life Without Losing Your Soul, and the bestsellers, More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, The Beauty of What Remains, and For You When I Am Gone. The last two I have read and we will be talking about a bit in this conversation. But so happy you're here listening. So nice to be nestling in the warm sleeping bag of your ear canal. <laughs> oh, the ear canals. Is there any other podcast really highlighting the value of those? Like podcasts couldn't exist without them, honestly. Thank you for your ear canals and bringing them here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Rabbi Steve Leader. At some point, we're all fellow travelers, but um, yeah, it is It is the only real thing there is, mm -hmm. you know, for me. Uh, death mm -hmm. is the only thing that strips away all of the nonsense in the kabuki. And uh, it, it, it's the, it is the exercise in essentialism mm -hmm. that we all really, really need. You know, Kafka was right. He said the meaning of life is that it ends. Yeah, that's that's like my favorite. And it's quote really theme. that simple, <laughs> it right? Is, it, it is. Yeah. It really is that simple. Yeah, it is. That early on, I came across that quote, and I was like, "This is mm -hmm. it." You know, I typed yes. it up. I did. I did a little like uh, a picture, like a social media meme, where I drew out yeah. the lifeline. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then at the end of you that, know, it's that quote. You know. Yes, I love and it. and you know, I I I think there's a point in your life. Certainly, there has been for you, and there has been for me. And probably for every human being, where that realization that the meaning of life is that it ends moves from fact to truth. Before we really experience a deep loss, 
saying, well, the meaning of life is that it ends and everyone goes, well, yeah, of course, everyone yeah. dies. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. That's a fact. On paper. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. That's a fact, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But you don't grasp the truth of it until you stare death in the face. I, I, I absolutely believe that from from my experience. And, and but what I what I sense about you is and, and I, I want to kind of acknowledge a couple things here, like in your book, uh, especially in the beauty of what remains, part of what you talk about is your father really giving you that like deepest understanding. Um, but I can tell you exactly when it happened. Yeah, that's that's, that's I, I know I exactly hear. the moment that that fact became a truth. Mm hmm. And uh, this book you're talking about, The Beauty of What Remains, is two things. It, it's a it's a memoir and a field guide. That was the tricky part of writing mm-hmm. it. And it, and the memoir part of it is the journey from rabbi, who had officiated over a thousand funerals, to son. Yeah. Whose father suffered through 10 years of Alzheimer's and then mm-hmm. ultimately died. And... This this was the moment for me. We my father died. I got the call from my mother, and I flew back to Minneapolis, where I was raised. And the uh, we we went to the synagogue for my father's funeral. And there they do the service in the synagogue, and then you go to the cemetery for the burial. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting in this little room off this you know on sort of the administrative hallway of the synagogue. And my family, I'm one of five. We were all in there. And the rabbi was going to come and walk us out into the sanctuary where we could view my father's body in the casket before the casket would be closed and we could start the funeral. And I was sitting in that room with my family and I, and I saw the, yes, this, you know, young rabbi walk in and I thought to myself, mm-hmm. well, I know exactly how the rabbi feels right now. Yeah, yeah. But I have no idea how I feel. Mm, That that moment in the book. Yeah, and and then he walks us out into the chapel. And I approach my my father's uh, casket and body. And I look down... And, and you have to know this part of it. My father and I have looked almost identical at every stage of our lives. So if you saw a picture of him at 10 and a picture of me at 10, you couldn't tell the difference. And so I looked down at my father, who was 85 at the time, and I'm 62. And I put my, my hand on his chest because I wanted to touch him, but I didn't want to feel how cold I knew he was, his body was. So I put my hand on his chest and I looked at him. Now keep in mind Ned, that I had stood next to literally a thousand families doing what I was doing in that moment. I stood next to a thousand families helping them look at their loved one and, and say goodbye before the closing of the casket. And honestly, I could have eaten a sandwich standing there. It's like I, mm. I was doing my job. I was being compassionate and mm-hmm. empathetic and all of those things, but it wasn't, it didn't penetrate me. Mm. didn't rock me. Mm. It didn't reorient the laws of physics. Yeah. 
But there I was, my hand on my dad's chest, and I looked down at him, and my first thought was, that's exactly what I'm going to look like when I'm dead. Mm -hmm. And my son is bending over my casket. Mm -hmm. I am going to die. Mm. I was 58 years old. Mm. I had officiated at over a thousand funerals Mm. and hadn't turned the fact of death into the truth of my life Mm. until that very moment Mm -hmm. four years ago. Mm -hmm. Four years ago. The thing that I, like, I know what you're talking about because I lived it. Mm -hmm. But I also, it's like, I want to like stay with that because I know it's that significant, but there's part of me that's like, I also want to acknowledge though, I mean, imagine you eating a sandwich next to any of the, any of the, the caskets before that is, is going to take a minute to get out of my, my head, but, <laughs> well, but, but there on, might be a, a hint of hyperbole. There might be a hint of hyperbole there. I know, I know. And, and, and I know that's true because I know that you'd gotten, here's what I wonder. And there's a question in there for anybody that hasn't come up against this kind of loss yet. And it is the like, well, what does it take to get as close as you can? And I would say my guess with, you know, answering for you and I'll just forgive me if I could just try, but it is the like, it's the work as a rabbi, the schooling, you know, like all of, all of that in the Jewish tradition, the amount of room that's made for like grief and loss and the work of being a rabbi, the death and dying, like you could not have been closer except for your own father's death. And I could not have been closer and yet I could not have been further away. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's just it's, it's you know I've often yeah. I, I've I've often uh, thought about writing a book called how to have your second child first mm-hmm. which is a great title <laughs> it is right? a great title but it's an impossible book to write yeah you can't have your second child first <laughs> yeah it's impossible I don't know and I, so, I think you should take a stab at it I bet something worthwhile uh, would come no, out of that no, it, I love the idea but you're right you're right you're right right and so I don't think it matters how many funerals or dead bodies you've Mm. observed. I don't think it matters if you've been in the trenches in war or run an ER or are, are an, um, you know, run a mortuary. I don't think it matters how many other people's losses you are there Mm. to, to comfort people through. Yeah. When, until it rips your own heart out, I I really don't think there's any way to grasp it. It's I, almost I like that. trying to teach someone to swim without putting them in the water. Yeah. You know, I, I could show you videotapes about swimming. I mm-hmm. could show you YouTube movies about swimming. I could give you books about swimming. I could bring, I don't know, you know, Michael Phelps in to talk to you about mm-hmm. swimming. I could do that for 20 years of your life and and drop you in the deep end of a pool and you're going to drown. You're right. Because I've taught you about swimming. Mm -hmm. I haven't taught you how to swim Mm. and being around death, being around suffering, being around pain, which, which I have been my entire adult life. And of course there's all the childhood trauma that we don't need to get into, but well, we might, (laughs) it's maybe we will, but it is not, it is not the same. Yeah. And, and it, it, 
You know, Graham Greene said about writers that the difference between a writer and everyone else is that a writer has a shard of ice in him that allows him to take notes. I love that. Right. Mm -hmm. I, we all have that shard of ice Mm -hmm. until it's our turn. Well, you even said with your dad that you could even hold on to that a little bit. Like as a writer, you couldn't quite separate that. This book is a way somehow you were paying attention all along from that perspective that that you could bring it back to us. Yeah, but I you're absolutely you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right, and um, and so I I think that you know is there a way to get people there? I think the closest I could come to getting anyone there would be to to ask, for example, if you were to say to me, Steve, my mother's had cancer for a long time. I know she's going to die. Feel unprepared. What is the experience going to be like? How am I going to get through it, et cetera? I would have asked you at 25, since she died when you were 26, I would have asked you, well, Ned, what have you ever had your heart broken? And I think you probably by the age of 25 would have said yes. Mm-hmm. And I would have said, well, let's talk about that mm. and what that was like and how you got through it. Because that's the closest planet. Yeah. I can put, I can put you on, you know, people often come to me and they say, this is the worst thing. Rabbi, you won't believe it. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I don't know how. And I say to them, I'm sure it is. Mm. What was the second worst thing? Mm. What was in first position before today? And we talk about it and we look at the resources that you called upon to get through that previous worst thing that ever happened. And then I try to remind people that they still have all of those resources and abilities. You know, people say I leaned on my family or I sought professional help or time healed or I nature healed. I said, well, those things will all be true this time as well. And um, that that's the closest I can, I can get someone to, having what is ultimately the only thing that works, which is faith in yourself. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to belabor this because it's like, I'm trying to acknowledge that anyone who I talk to, who you supported before your mm-hmm. dad died, I bet most anyone I would talk to would say he, he was incredible. Yes. You know, he, he was there. He told yeah. me he yeah, said yeah. what I needed, you know, and, and, you know, but something happened that you've described already, but something happened that shifted. Like all of what's in this book isn't after your dad died, you know, like something, I, there's something. Well, I'll tell you what, okay. the, I'll, Sorry, I'll tell you the way. I, I have other questions well, too, no, no. I really, this matters to me. Cause no, like, I, I will. Well, I will tell you what I said to the, um, publisher, the publishers at Penguin Random House when we were talking about whether or not they would buy the book. Mm. And they, they were very aggressive in wanting this book. And I said to them, you know, I could have written this book before my father died. Right. I could have. And that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, I could absolutely. have written this book before my father died, but it's going to be a better book now that he has. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there, the, the reaction I have gotten about the book that has 
seem to be the differentiator between the beauty of what remains and other books about grief and loss and other memoirs is so many people have said to me, when I was reading your book, Steve, I kept saying to myself, yes, that's it. That's the feeling. That's the truth. What other people say about this is bullshit. That is what it is. And I think there's that extra degree of truth Mm -hmm. that I could not have achieved Mm. before my father died. I mean, I almost imagine it as, or experience it, not even imagine it. I experience it as, yeah, you could have written the book before, but the you having lived through this loss gives it a, this life to it. I mean, that's what what a way yes. to describe it, but there's a life to it, reading it, that's like, he gets it. He know, I know, I could sit with him and cry about this. You know, like, yes. I'm absorbing yes. this like my dad is going to die, you know, and he is, he's still alive yes. and he will die. Yeah. Um, and, and what I want to, what I, okay, I appreciate you sticking with that particular piece. I'll of tell you something else it, too. Yeah, go ahead. Just, well, it's on my mind since you can edit out whatever mm. you don't want to keep in yeah, this yeah. podcast. Yeah. There aren't a lot of men writing about this. Yeah, absolutely not. I know that's for sure. True. Yeah, I, I get it. And I can't imagine not writing about it. Okay, that's perfect. I do want to keep this in. And I want to talk about something that does connect probably to some of the childhood stuff for you. You know, part of what you do in the book is, is you're just so visible, you know, I mean, talking about these moments when you'd be like, I don't want to go to this funeral. I don't, someone calls you to, you know, the th- moments you get called forth, you know, and just the honesty with which you share that. I mean, oh, Steve, like there, it's a version of what I described earlier. Like it's a way of giving yourself that's like, thank you. So then what happened? You know, it's like, okay, but you went anyway. And it's like this way of just the vulnerability with which that you, you, you give us, you know, your being in the world yeah. is so potent and it is such an access point. And it is, by the way, the reason why it connects to what you just shared for me, there's a, there's a way that my work is, is like that. You know, you already get mm-hmm. me enough in this little time we've talked, yeah. like the vulnerability, a white male, you know, man, you know, in the world, uh, who's willing to just bear it and say so how significant that is in contrast to, I would say the generations before, which is why I kind of want to connect the two to your father and just yes. talk about the pendulum yes. swing, you know, of what yes. we come from. And in my, my case, yeah. And in my case, if I'm not, look, I pull some punches like all of us, right? There's some kabuki in everyone's life, but mm. I, I do know that I have been more, honest and open and transparent than most clergy would be. Sure. And part of that for me is honestly enlightened self-interest because the alternative is to carry a degree of bitterness within that will destroy your life. Yeah. And, and that's not how I want to live. I lived that way for a very long time and I don't want to live that way. So you say there's a stretch of time, even as a rabbi, where you were kind of keeping a lot of stuff hidden and or whatever, not not obviously sharing it with the public. Most of my career. Did your did your dad's death shift this or did something else shift that for you? My well, there were two things that shifted it. I wrote a book about each of them. Mm. The first was when I was in a uh, really serious and frightening car accident a hit and run. 
and it damaged my spine and mm-hmm. I, I was in excruciating pain, mm-hmm. just unbearable. Nothing helped. Injections didn't help. I was gobbling opioids like candy and um, I became very depressed. And then I had spinal surgery and gobbled more opioids and more depression. And it, it was my first bullet. And I wrote a book called, uh, called more beautiful than before how Mm -hmm. suffering transforms us Mm -hmm. because that suffering and that physical pain opened my eyes to, um, the pain of others Mm -hmm. and how hard it is, how hard it is when you're depressed. I'd never been a depressed person before in my life. Mm -hmm. Never. Mm -hmm. I was always an optimistic person. There was nothing I couldn't do. My mental health was fine. What it, it turns out I actually was subordinating my anxiety and depression through an absolutely brutal work ethic, Yeah, which I learned from my father. My father's real religion was sweat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, he put his faith in hard work mm-hmm. and to a degree that's made me who I am, but it also almost destroyed me. And so that, That car accident, that surgery, that chronic pain, those opioids, the way people's demands felt so heavy upon me and people's inability, really most people's inability to treat me as anything other than a symbolic exemplar Mm. of their projections Mm -hmm. really embittered me. And I started getting help. I started seeing a psychiatrist every Is that what, like, I want to take a moment with that, with that shift. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't think you just, <laughs> I don't think you're like, all right, final call therapist. Like what, what really occurred right then? Like, you know, I know your wife probably some ways you acknowledge her presence during that time in, in your, in your book, but what, what really shifted it where you could get out of that dark place and take action to, to, to get, get somewhere healthier, you know? I knew, I knew I was on a self-destructive path. Yeah. An internally bitter, self-destructive path. And I remember the first thing I said to uh, the psychiatrist, my psychiatrist, who I still see mm. every week. Uh, I remember what I said to him when I walked in and sat down. I explained the car accident, et cetera. And I said, I, I think this is either going to be a midlife crisis or a midlife opportunity. Mm. And I prefer the latter. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, And because it was a lot on the line. Yeah. Right. My family, my career. That I feel like your dad could have been a voice in that stretch. I know that probably during my that dad time would never, was, my dad would never have gone to therapy. If he I put know, a gun I to know his but head. I think the work ethic <laughs> would have been like, are you going to dig out of this or not? You know, like, yes, I feel like yes, that because you know, there's some way you've, you've admitted already, you acknowledge yes. you've integrated him into how you are, have made it. Yes. Here. And so, yes, for sure. Voice, and you know? I, I think that's right. And, um, but I, and then I do want to just <laughs> similarly, it's like my mom, dad too, but like my, I go to these cancer patient rooms all the time. It's like, yeah, walk in, like yeah. you want to do some art? You want to talk to me? My mom would have been like, get the hell out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Drugs, right? <laughs> get me home. 
Yeah. And your dad just yeah. like, no way in hell your dad. Would I remember have, when we, I remember when we told my dad he had Alzheimer's and, and I said, dad, do you have any questions? He said, mm, not really. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> that was the whole, that God, was okay. To that. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. Okay. Can I be a little more like that? So I'm wondering if even, you know, I get, I don't want to, I don't want to overstep or um, diminish what it's been like from being a child and having a father like your dad, which obviously it's like you touch on these things in your book. Um, but also yeah. there are those ways we can integrate the power of how they are. And, and you do a yes, good job of that's like, right. writing about that. Yeah. At least, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yes, for sure. And I, I thank God every day for that work ethic mm-hmm. and yet, and yet, yeah. I, I, I thank God that I've gotten the help I need to understand the collateral damage that comes from that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so that I can have a more balanced approach to life now Mm -hmm. and be, be just a better, calmer human being. Um, but that was the first was the car accident. and, Mm -hmm. And that book set me on this path of exploring pain and loss and there are many kinds of hell that people go through, yeah. many kinds of hell, the hell of divorce, the hell of cancer, the hell of a kid in trouble, the hell of public embarrassment, you know, mm-hmm. the, the hell of addiction, um, the hell of death itself for, you know, of someone you love. There, there are many forms of hell. And this was this book was and this experience was the first time I started thinking about, well, okay, it's obvious we all go through hell, but we don't have to come out empty handed. Mm -hmm. And then I came across this quote from Dostoevsky, which is so powerful. He said, my greatest fear is that I, my life will not be worthy of my suffering. Mm -hmm. I, I find that to be an incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. imperative. Mm -hmm. Okay. This happened to you, Ned, when you were 26, this happened to your family and we cannot have a better past. Mm -mm. I often say to people in on my couch of tears, which is what I call the couch in my office. I have given up all hope of a better past. But can you be worthy? Can you make yourself and your life worthy of the suffering you have endured? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good quote. <laughs> it's everything, really. Yeah. But then I think to connect it back to what you, you're saying, these moments in your life when you knew that part of the best way to articulate that, the best way to give that to somebody is to share your version of it, like to show like, Correct. this is it. Like, I'm not just talking about like the, the same thing as the book that you're right. The book is here's one thing I wanted to say, and you're, you helped me realize this. I want to articulate to you that it really isn't like, well, all the things you knew before about when people die, what to say and how to be with it, the room to make for it, what grief is, all that, you did know. And you knew through your work and how you chose to be in the world, you know? But there's something about really even this simply, I know it's more than this, because it really is your deepening of into all that is losing your mm-hmm. father. But there is something just about you saying, my dad died. You know, like, here's what it was like. I lived through it. Here's how I could apply any of these things I ever learned, you know? And similarly, or to this, reject it's like you some could never say, Yes, right. Exactly. Yeah, that didn't work. Here's why I understand it now better than ever, right? 
And this piece yeah, with the and- suffering, as you also then know, you can say, I'm not just talking about Dostoevsky's quote from like, boy, when no. stuff gets bad for me, I'll sure remember that. It's like, no, I've been, I've been through the dark, you know? <laughs> it is, if you, if one does not have the authenticity of one's own experience and is unwilling to examine and embrace that experience and is un and I then I don't know how you possibly truly can connect with another human being. Yeah. And how you can truly evidence empathy. You know, you it's like I feel like now I know, look, I, I, I'm hard on myself. I know I didn't do a bad job of things before, but I feel like until my dad died in my work helping people through loss, I feel like I was kind of handing them a picture of food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Close, but not quite the real thing. I don't know why I keep coming back to this, but I there is this part of me that wonders about <laughs> I keep I just want to drill this point home, but it's like I still wonder if you knew something that you didn't fully understand because it hadn't been something to apply in your own life, but that someone who was dealing with real grief, it did meet them. Because part of me wants, is there's a listener out there that's like, well, cool, I don't get it and I'll, I won't until someone dies. But I, I would say, especially having you as a guest, Steve, on, on the show, mm-hmm. there's this chance that part of your work, though, is is holding a community together let's say you know as a senior rabbi mm-hmm. you're holding a community mm-hmm. together that you want to connect people to these things in ways that are understandable enough that it binds yes. the community yes uh, uh, yes i understand what you're saying and yes we can all be excellent excellent amateurs yeah <laughs> okay yeah. but that yeah. that's no that's no small you're thing you're right you're right you're right Okay. And so, for example, when people ask me, I often get calls that go, I'm going to make it up something like this. Steve, um, my best friend from college was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's got three to six months. I'm going to fly back east to visit him. What do I say? I've never had pancreatic cancer. I've never had a friend die. What do I say? Mm -hmm. And so I. I start with two words followed by two more words. Okay. And then I, then I uh, kind of fill in the details. Mm -hmm. Show up, be you. Mm. Now, what do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. After 35 years of standing in hospital hallways before walking into a room or standing on a front doorstep before walking into the home of mourners or a dying person. After 35 years of this, Ned, Mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm going to say when I walk in. (laughs) I just know I have to walk in Mm -hmm. and be myself. Mm -hmm. This is what people need who are suffering. Yeah. And we can all do that. They don't need you to walk in the room and put on some phony, crappy, acting poorly acted you know so oh Ned, this is terrible i'm so sorry yeah, like walking with the book. oh it's the worst thing totally i've ever <laughs> yeah right and what they need is for you to walk in and be yourself yeah 
And we all know how to do that. If you're a hug or hug, if you're a feed or feed, if you're a joke or joke, yes. if you're a cry or cry, whatever, whatever. The, because so you being that. yourself, yeah. right, is the only thing that assures them that the bottom isn't falling out of the world and that right. they still exist. Right. They're not defined entirely by their loss or their, you know, impending death. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, you're right. We can all learn a lot without having the experience and we can all do a lot without having the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and do I know more about how it feels when people reach out appropriately? Sure. Yeah. But I knew enough before. Yeah. I wasn't a complete imbecile before. <laughs> not at all. Um, and there are things of course that we can learn. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's this at, I'll give you an example. Let me mm-hmm. put it this way. This might mm-hmm. be really helpful to your listeners. One of my closest friends is a surgeon and he's been a surgeon for a long time. He's in his seventies, my fishing buddy. And I asked him not long ago, I said, what's the difference between you and the surgeons coming out of medical school now and coming out of their internships and their residencies? And he said, well, the new young surgical residents, they know the rules. I know the exceptions to the rules. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I would say about mm-hmm. experience. Like, yeah, you can understand a lot about how to be helpful and how to do the right thing and say the right things and avoid saying the wrong things. And and I think I did know a lot and I have a tradition that taught me a lot. But there comes a point where you also not only know the facts, but the truths, where you not only know the fundamentals, but you've become turned it into a craft where, where you not only know the rules and the generalities, but you know, the exceptions to those rules. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's really what I'm okay. trying to describe that's here great. is yeah. that, that level, right. Yeah, that where really... you achieve, I think an athlete or an artist musician would call it flow. So in a recent episode of the podcast, um, Nick Jana popped in a little earlier than usual and we did. <laughs> that was me popping in. <laughs> was that your mouth noise? I was, was that a mouth in. noise? I was popping in. Um, welcome Nick Jana. So he's here. <laughs> the episode's not over. All of you have been listening to the show for many, many episodes. Usually you don't hear his voice until the end of the show, but no. he's here early. Cause last, last episode we did a little, um, encouraging exercise to get you to rate and review the podcast through Apple podcasts, Spotify, or however you listen to this this thing. And they don't all have options. You know, the things you listen, the platforms you listen on, they don't all have options, but some of them do. And even if you don't listen on Apple podcasts, maybe with our encouragement right now through another fun and entertaining exercise, you might go over to Apple podcasts or Spotify and click a star. These things take literally seconds of your life. Now, we know that life is fragile and fleeting and you only have so much time, but if you're already listening to us now, 
you're already listening to an episode while you're doing that maybe you could do a little rating or review to support the show and thanks to all of you who have done so already uh definitely an influx of ratings and reviews came after our last episode was released and so let's just see if a little magic can happen again here between us. <laughs> a little, little menage a trois, Nick, me, and you. Thanks. Um, Nick, what's our uh, what's our inspiring, playful game that we're going to do today to get people to do some ratings and reviews? How about categories? Oh, categories before? Wow. Yeah, I've played it before. I like to do homemade. Homemade categories where part of the game is creating the, the categories. Usually you get it in a box and it's got all the categories listed and it's just like colors, animals, but we can personalize the categories and that's some of the fun. <laughs> what a cute introduction. Uh, do you play, <laughs> do you really do this at home? I do, yeah. Do you have categories? I don't even think I have it. It's yeah. just, it's better Who when you make them? it because half of the fun is making up the categories. Half the fun is making the game. All right, I, I'm ready. Lead, you sound skeptical, lead me. but it's true. It's good. It adds some like tension to the moment if if someone's skeptical. Okay, so we'll go back and forth on this uh, of the creating the categories. So I'll go first. Uh, oh, and by the way, categories works. You have these categories, then you pick a letter, and then each person has to think of a word that starts with the letter that fits in the category. But you, you, you get a point if you have a unique, acceptable answer, but mm-hmm. if you have the same answer, they cancel each other out. Got it. Most points wins. So first category, or yeah, first category is uh, words that describe our podcast. Okay. And uh, we're going to write down five. No, no. <laughs> God, I already lost track of what's going on. We're 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 listing the categories. <laughs> oh, okay. And then you ha- you just then when we go back through, we have a letter, and then you list one Got it. thing for that. Got so it. now now you tell me a category. Oh, I see. Um, country. <laughs> <laughs> a, a fun personalized category that only we could have come up with. <laughs> Listen, I'm directing our categories to a complete <laughs> rating, let's say on Apple Podcasts. So similarly to last time when we did oh, our exercise, oh, yeah, okay. we did a Mad Lib, you guys, an I Ad see. Lib, I call it, and Nick refuses to, but we did an Ad Lib last episode and we used the categories to actually create a review. And so that's what I'm doing now. Is the magic here? Do you think, do you think we're recapturing the magic? I, uh, I think so. It feels it. It feels like it's coming in right now. Okay. Um, all right. Now I see the direction that you want this to go. And I'm going to, of course, correct. So good to be on the same page finally after all these years. Things you can do while listening to a podcast. Ooh. Okay. There's hopefully music behind this because we're just being quiet for an awful I'm long gonna, time. I'm going to cut out all the silence. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. You could do music, though. This will, this will swim you by. Will do music. Okay, swim. Um. And a, a number. <laughs> Jesus. I don't know if that... Well, okay. well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see, won't we? Uh, this Okay, this is one that I've literally done in a game of categories with Chelsea before. Um, Chelsea, the uh, creative director of You're Going to Die. Things that make Ned cry. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw this. All right. Make me cry. Okay. Okay. Now we take a minute 
and just go through and come up. Oh, no, we have to choose a letter. So yeah. I'm going to mentally think of the roll alphabet. Roll the die. The roll the mental alphabetical die. I'm going to think through the alphabet and you say stop at a certain time, right? Oh, nice. That's fun. Nice, buddy. I didn't know how we do this part. God, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> We're including all this silence. Stop. D. All right. So I'll cut out the silence, but we'll we'll take a minute and then come up with these, and then we'll then we'll see them, right? Okay. Yeah. You ready? By the way, I think we're both in garages today. I come to you from a garage. Wow! It looks like a great one. It's a great garage, but it, it also similar to you. I imagine there there's like sometimes people talking like five feet away. Yeah, yeah. If someone walks by the garage door, it's suddenly very loud. Yeah. But mostly it's a quiet street, so it works pretty well. All right. Okay. Words <clears throat> that describe the podcast. I said decompressing. Oh, I, I thought about that one. I went with dark. Mm, okay. Good. We both get a point. One point. Country, Denmark. Oh, I ah. guess we both lose a point on that one. Jeez. I also chose Denmark, and I knew you would. I should have thought about it a little more. But anyway. Okay. Things, Things to, do, to while do while listening. Listening. Dishes. What? Dishes. Good. Digit dancing. What is digit dancing? It's just like when you do little dance moves with your fingers on like a surface. And that's, <laughs> that's what you've you've always points. called it digit dancing and <laughs> yes. everyone knows that phrase. Yeah, I think most yeah. listeners are nodding right now in yeah. recognition. That's a two-pointer, okay. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> 2Ds, categories. If you do a double word that both begins with the letter, you get extra points. Wow. And uh, the number? I said double zero. <laughs> no, that's sad because this is supposed to fill the part of well, the review come that's on. the number rate. <laughs> How many numbers put, are there? I put doce. <laughs> <laughs> I think other languages in the official game isn't allowed, but you didn't say it, so we got one more point for Nettie over here. Things that make Ned cry. I said doorways. You ever cried at a doorway? <laughs> I might have cried at one, but it's not why I cried. <laughs> or like a, I was thinking like metaphorical doorways. Yeah, a threshold oh. of death. New new phase death. of life. God, why didn't you put death? Why didn't I put Oh yeah, death? I didn't think of death. Death makes me cry. I'm going to go with uh, dentists doing dentistry. Oh, my <laughs> That's God. That's a three-pointer. Okay. Right. okay, so we're doing that. <laughs> dentists doing dentistry. All right, I got one, two, three, The four, clarification five, six, is so important. Seven points. <laughs> hey, dentists do a lot of other things, too. They're human beings. You? Oh, you went to the I dentist today? To Was he doing up. dentistry? <laughs> I think I won that one. Everybody... Yeah. The way you can win <laughs> is by going to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the platforms you listen to the podcast, click a star, leave some words, support the podcast by letting us know how much you love it. Click a star. That's a new phrase for me. Click a star. Like click a number of stars. Is that what you mean? That's a TM. Trademarked. Click a star. Yeah, like check the yeah, click the number. <laughs> okay, click us, click the stars, click many stars, click one through five stars. Keep your feet on the carpet and click on the stars. <laughs> I hope for all of us it is permission, in fact, encouragement to privilege 
the commonality of our humanity over our particular ideological points of view. That's the bigger meta message here, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Imagine a world where people placed empathy above ideology. Mm -hmm. Imagine what a world that would be. Yeah. That's part of what I, how I, that's part of why I broke you know, down at the end of that chapter, I think. Yeah. And you know, if I can, uh, if I, if I can get a little religious on you for a mm-hmm. second, not even yeah. religious, but yeah. just look at the Bible as proof text. I have studied a great deal and am very interested in, um, the sages understanding of the ninth plague of the 10 plagues in the Exodus story. Um, and that ninth plague is the plague of darkness. Mm-hmm. And the sages of the Talmud, they have a conversation about, well, what what exactly was this darkness? Was it a 24-hour night? Was that it? Mm -hmm. Was it an eclipse? Or was it something else? Mm. And the answer, the, the Bible itself says that it was so dark that no person could get up from underneath himself. Now, the way... Right. The yeah, way I know that darkness. the right, right. You can't get out of your own way. Oh my gosh. Or you can't, you can't see the, through anyone else's eyes, mm. but your own, mm-hmm. you can't get up from underneath your own certainty. You, mm. you can't, you don't have the security, maturity, confidence to inject some doubt into your point of view. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was so dark that the Israelites and the Egyptians, they couldn't see the humanity in the other. They couldn't get out from underneath their own prejudices. And that is a road to misery and divisiveness. So if we, I don't think there's any more powerful force for good on earth than empathy than getting out from up underneath our own certitudes. I want to talk about the, the will and I, and I don't mm, want to talk about it goals. like we've talked about it. Uh, you've talked about it a lot. I'm not saying it's not valuable to have you be on the show and talk about things like you talked about a lot on other shows, but the, cause I think that uh, I, I do want you to describe the will because I, I really do want, I think it's so valuable. And I think the book, um, you know, for, for you when I'm gone is so, and the journal, right? I, 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 haven't, I haven't checked that out. But yeah, I the journal's you. coming out in, de- in okay, December, so you yet. can't. Cool, I'm actually recording it. Um, I'm recording it tomorrow. Okay, well, why so, don't you, can you talk a little yeah. bit about the will? Just kind of a brief um, sure. overview. And then really what I want to know, Steve, is like what it was mm-hmm. like when your kids, you gave it to your kids. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. I just want to, I want to know yeah. what that moment was well, like. <laughs> first of all, thank you for asking me some different questions. Okay, I'm, sure, I was, I'm a little, <laughs> I'm sure you've talked I appreciate about that. so yeah. much. And you yes, can say like, I no, I don't so, want to talk about that anymore. That'd no, okay. no, I do want to talk about it from a different, okay. different angle. Cool. Um, you're, you're, you're a different kind of interviewer and it's beautiful. Mm. Thank you. Okay, so the best way to understand what an ethical will is, is to start with what it is not. If you think about, for most people, what the final word is they hear from their loved one, 
when their loved one has died, Mm -hmm. the last thing most of us hear from our loved ones is part of their estate plan. It's a last will and testament. It's a boilerplate legalese document written by someone who barely knew them. Mm -hmm. And it is entirely about who gets what and when and how much. And one of the saddest memories uh, after my dad died was going down into the basement of my parents' home and seeing all my dad's stuff in a heap on the basement floor. Nobody wanted it. Goodwill didn't want it. In, uh, you know, in the Beauty of What Remains, there's a chapter called Nobody Wants Your Crap mm-hmm. and the double entendre is intended. Mm-hmm. We spend all of our lives working to make money, to buy things, to give to people when we're gone, hoping that the material will somehow express the spiritual and the emotional. And it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, mostly. It m- Not mostly. <laughs> it all. doesn't. Yeah, you're right. At all. Yeah. At all. Mm-hmm. What do people want from us when we're gone? They want our blessing. They want our life lessons. Mm -hmm. What we've learned from failure, what we regret, what, what we believe it means to love, what we believe it means to be a good person. These are the things that people want and need and that will really comfort and hold them when we're gone. And and so I wrote this book. The subtitle is 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. What I essentially did, I mean, I'm just going to like give you the dark <laughs> secret. Tell me. <laughs> My editor asked me, how did you come up with these 12 questions in this order? If you actually answer them, your whole life just unfolds. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, 35 years and 15 minutes. It took me 15 minutes to write the list of those 12 yeah. questions. Why? Because those are the questions I've been asking families the day before the funeral for their loved one for 35 years. Yeah. Because I'm trying to get my arms around the truth of this person's life and and help them get their arms around it so I can write a eulogy so they can mm-hmm. tell the story and feel it and perhaps also write a eulogy. We keep circling around this idea of truth versus fact, okay? I, I was born in 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota and I went to Aquila Elementary School. So what? <laughs> right? Those are facts, but they don't tell you anything about me other yeah. than my age. Yeah. But if I were to say to you, When I was a little boy and I misbehaved, my father would say to me, I don't want to have to hit because when I hit, I break bones. Mm -hmm. Now you know a truth about me Mm -hmm. and my life. Mm -hmm. And these questions are, if answered humbly and authentically, and fully 
will will unfold like a flower in time-lapse photography, the truth of our lives. Mm -hmm. And then you have two things, Ned. And this is so interesting. The second largest demographic to buy the book are millennials, people between the ages of 30 and 40. I'm telling you, that's that's where we're at now. This pendulum I was talking about, you know? Yes. And what that says is that in one way, look, every author fails in many ways, hopefully succeeds in one or two. My hope was that people would understand this is not a book about death. It's a Mm. book about life, Mm -hmm. your life. Yeah. Because if you answer these questions, yes, you will have a legacy letter, what I call an ethical will to leave for your loved ones when you're gone. But you will also have a kind of what I call an internal MRI Mm -hmm. that you can hold up to the light and you can ask yourself what I believe is the single most important question any of us can ask ourselves, which is, okay, this is my truth. This is what I say I believe. Mm-hmm. Am I living it? Yeah, for yourself. Or am I mostly yeah, not for, the for yourself? Yes, yes, yes. For yourself. Yes. Or Great. am I pretending? Mm-hmm. What more important question could we ask of ourselves than am I living my truth or is my life kabuki? Okay. A couple things I want to just just highlight. First of all, this idea, the millennials thing, I, I, I hear that you're 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 connecting of you know part of what you've written and given out in this book to why it would matter to that age range, and that is probably one yes. of them, right? I believe that you know that this is like what's the mean? What am I doing? I'm everybody's going to die. The ex- world's going to just burn. Exactly. Well, I, I so I have think, two millennial children. Yeah, you do, right? right? Okay, sorry. Yeah, you absolutely. They want to know what, do what path know. should I take? I do Does it also matter? Wonder about what I think you are and your kids then are are also a version of, which is what I mentioned earlier, which is this mm-hmm. pendulum swing of generations, right? Mm-hmm. You are, mm-hmm. and your kids are a product too. I think because of this, mm-hmm. of being in the world in a way in response to what your dad was and no disrespect to your dad, yes. but I just mean, no, no, you know, and I so think then we're all, we yes, have this, this generation now that's like, wouldn't it matter more if we made time for these conversations? Wouldn't it matter more to write my will when I'm in my thirties instead of maybe when I'm 75 or 70 or sick in my sixties. And so I, I just want to say there's something that's different now about the generations coming up that are like, they're thinking about this stuff more than, well, you know, I, listen, I think it's, it's hard. It's hard to realize it because of course we're not in their shoes, but I know my father considered his life and his parenting to be vastly more enlightened <laughs> Than the one he was raised <laughs> yeah, with. Totally, totally, yes, yeah. I know you're. He right. had immigrant. You're right. right. He had immigrant parents. They didn't speak English. Yeah. They. He grew up on welfare. They burned wax it's paper in the Minnesota winter to that. stay warm. Yes. His father beat the shit out of mm-hmm. him. Um. He he pretty much stopped going to high school because he had to work. Mm-hmm. And the fact that my father allowed us to buy books and go to college and didn't beat the shit out of us. He scared us. Mm -hmm. And that he spoke English was a huge advancement in his mind. Yeah. 
right? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate Did he that. ever go to a ball game? Did he ever know we really existed beyond whether we were working or not? No, but okay, so I'm an improvement in some ways over that. Well, but I'm, but, but in some lot, ways again, I'm not. No disrespect. Okay. Right? Yeah. And I, yeah, I know. Yeah. I appreciate all the complexities. And, okay. You know, so it, it's nuanced, yeah. but yes, I, and I do think that there is, uh, I think it's, you know, the beauty of what remains, I didn't intend for it to land in the middle of the worst pandemic in a hundred years, right. but it did. Yeah. But it did yeah. during this massive reassessment and and omnipresence of death mm-hmm. and vulnerability. Yeah. COVID pierced the world's sense of invulnerability. Yes. Was it worth a million deaths in this country for the wake up call? No. However, neither was it worthless. And and the millennials were ahead of us on this. They were ahead of us on this. Yeah, you can work from home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can be comfortable. No, you don't have to wear a uniform suit and a tie. Mm-hmm. And, and no, you you really can talk to people virtually and it's more convenient and easier and better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, these food apps and food delivery and, uh, and Uber, it's all pretty good. <laughs> it's useful. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. were way ahead of us. Uh, yeah. And and so I I think that my kids now look, they have the added layer of complexity of being my, literally my kids, having my last name and operating out in the world and in the community with me as their father. Yeah. Okay? And it's it's a blessing and it's a curse. Sure. But I have come, if we can just get really like ethereal for a second, mm-hmm. the older I get, the more I study Judaism, the deeper I fall in love with it, the more I have come to the conclusion that all of life is a duality. All of life is sustained through the dichotomous tension of these dualities of life and death, of lightness and darkness, of good health and and illness, of, of attachment and detachment. And making peace with the irreconcilable nature of a duality making peace with the dissonance I have found is its own resolution of the duality. Coming to the realization that memory of my father, the memory of my father is not only beautiful, which it is, but also extraordinarily painful. Mm -hmm. There's a duality to memory. We don't tell the truth about memory. Mm-hmm. In the book, I say it's like being caressed and spat on at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's memory. Yeah. Now, you know, I want to talk about him. I don't want to talk about him at all. All I want to do is think about him. All I want to do is forget. Right? right? This, yeah. this duality 
in your case, in your work, all I want to do is keep in mind I'm going to die. All I want to do is forget about the fact that I'm going <laughs> to yeah, die. Yeah, live a little. Right. So, and, and I have found in my own life, making peace with the irreconcilable nature of something is the reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And that is where I have managed to find my sense of peace and grounding in the world. Big thanks to Rabbi Steve Leader. So good to talk and read the books and get to talk after reading the books. Uh, check out The Beauty of What Remains, For You When I Am Gone, and For You When I Am Gone, a journal that accompanies that book. And of course, per usual, if you check the show notes, you can see all the links and connect up to Steve's work. Uh, especially encourage you to find him on Instagram at Steve underscore Leader, L-E-D-E-R. But feeling very, very glad to have had that conversation. Really meant a lot. And hello, Nick. What did it Hi. mean to you? Hi. It's so nice to hear someone of faith uh, with like faith-based learning and approach talk about that quality of, I love the idea of the darkness obscuring. Um, like you can't see another person's humanity because of this thing that descends upon you. Mm. And I've, notice that just in everything, in every discipline, you know, like even like music or whatever, there's a way that you think that the particulars of what you're doing are more important than connecting with someone next to you, you know? Yeah. And that was such a vivid depiction of that. Oh. Um, and, and I would love to know more or talk more about how do we lift that? <laughs> how do yeah. we lift that darkness? You know? Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's an illness. <clears throat> actually in, in a lot mm -hmm. of contexts in our culture, because my most available uh, example is that story. I, I share all the time of what it was like after my mom died, how quickly the company and capitalism, we've talked about it in the show, it's come up in, in other interviews, but how quickly the system wants us to act like this is what you do. Yeah. Like, here's how you got to act now. Cause we got to get back to getting life done. And, and interestingly, I connect that, you know, uh, Steve's experience in dealing with this community members end of life the risk is, well, I got to just do my job instead of what probably should always be available 
more often for us in all of these contexts, like to be more human. I mean, you and I just got off a call with someone um, having a conversation about doing the you're going to die work. And I would say to a fault, our organization makes room for the humanness maybe sometimes, but I'm also really proud and wouldn't want to work with an organization that didn't do that. Mm -hmm. If you come into a meeting with me to, to talk about the podcast, the next episode coming out and my dad's just died. Like, I want that to be there. If I'm going to be there, I want it to be there. And, and also if it's happened, maybe I don't need to be there. And then like, that's okay. How long do you need? Um, and I feel like we make a lot of room in this organization for these, these ways that we should be human led, uh, as often as possible. And in fact, that might change these other contexts. That's a curiosity. I have a theory of wondering, like if we were more human led, even in like the capitalist context in the work environment, like how might it transform these, these, these spaces for the better? Yeah. And you say it's like a sickness. I wonder if it's kind of also like a delusion or something, because it feels mm. like this state of like, or daydreamers, or I don't know, like that, that state where you just aren't seeing what's in front of you and, but you feel really committed to the things that you're focused on. And it's yeah. just like the things that are closest to you sometimes are just the hardest to connect with. Yeah. I, th I think that for me, there's a feeling that these systems that we're a part of are making decisions for us more than any humans that make, oh, yeah. make up and run those systems. And that's terrifying to me, you know, and, and I've lived through experiences that have threatened really like threatened my, my like well being and my livelihood because so often that's what makes the decision about what matters. And, and those things don't often, while sometimes someone could argue, well, it's the greater good, like one person's going to be sacrificed for the greater good. I think mostly it's, it's to protect that system over any human being or any human beings. And I, I know we're kind of like branching off into a lot of different contexts here to bring it back to, to Rabbi Steve. Like when I read that story and I, I know I shared this in the conversation already, but just to revisit that, like when I read that story, it was like, I was on the edge of my seat, literally, um, and already had accepted that he maybe needed to go with this quote unquote system, you know, the spiritual system, if, if that's what we should call it if for this context and the relief, like the catharsis I had when he ends that chapter, that was what I needed more than if he'd said, I would have understood, like I told him, I would have understood if he had to make the choice from the rabbi's seat, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's sad, but I would have just been like, yeah, but that he didn't, it was medicine for me <laughs> having that mm -hmm. uh, moment to receive that moment, you know? Mm -hmm. I find myself in this position sometimes where like recently I came up with a new book and I'm wanting to promote it and I'm wanting to reach out to people that I know bought my previous book and I just want to tell them about it and not be annoying and not be whatever. Yeah. But I find myself in this position of like, how do you type an email and make it clear that you're <laughs> yeah. really writing to them and you're not, this isn't <laughs> right, a form right. letter, you know? So yes. then I, I try to say, and sometimes it's uh, somebody I don't really know anything about other than their name and their email. So I'll like comment on their name <laughs> or 
or, you know, like maybe I know their city, I talk about their city or something, mm. you know? Um, and it's funny. It seems to happen more and more these positions where you have to like prove your humanness, you know, yeah. like, like prove that you're not a robot. Right. And I know that happens all the time on the internet, but like these extended versions where like I have <laughs> right. to really be like, I'm really writing to you and I'm really yeah. saying that this is to you. Well, you did a version of that with your social media when you were like, listen, you shouldn't buy this book. And that was your lead. And I, I wonder how effective it was. It got my attention. And it's this yeah. idea of like, we had, uh, now at this point need to even like, uh, go the opposite direction on how we're communicating with people. So we know like, really, it doesn't matter. And I'm also trying to articulate something that matters a lot. You know, um, yeah. I don't need you to do this thing, but I want you to hear my heart, my yeah. feelings about this. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you feel that, then maybe you'll buy the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. Um, there's something else that I kind of talked about in the intro and you'd brought up to me, but this, something I wanted to highlight from what he shared. Um, and it does connect to this, like being human showing up as we are. And he talks about like when someone's dying or someone's going through these hard things to show up as, um, almost like relying on the ways you tend to be. And the, the best example to, to be clear about the, the part of the conversation I'm, I'm bringing in here is when he says, like, if you're just funny, like you tend to be very funny. I know in our life we're thinking, you know, you don't want someone to be that when you're hurting or feeling grief stricken. But also what a refreshing thing for someone to know if that's kind of how they engage with these moments, it's authentic. Yeah. And what a thing to offer the realness of your human being, like who you really are. You're not going to suddenly change it with the seriousness of what's happening, even though that's refreshing too, for sure. But I really love that. Uh, invitation he was encouraging and and in his own work being that kind of person. And I, I feel that, especially with some of the vigil visits I do in the hospice context, going to people's bedside where there's so little you can actually even do. You can't engage. You can't make them feel better. It's the last hours of their life that you're showing up in. And trusting that my presence, just as it is, is what has been asked for you know, and what's needed there and, and almost being forced to accept that. Uh, and I, so I, I really like, it touched me that he talked a bit about that, like a relief to have someone say like, don't become someone else in these moments, just show up yeah, and then be who you are, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Consistency. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Nick, for the fun and all the work on this episode. Again, thanks to Rabbi Steve Leader. And uh, don't forget, y'all, please go check out uh, the podcast in certain platforms that allow ratings and reviews. We'd love the support there. We're so glad you're listening. We read the notes. We feel the love. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye, Nick. Bye. Roll up your little sleeping bag ear canals. Put them in the bag. Throw them on the shelf until next time. <laughs> Nick hasn't listened to the intro yet, but he'll get it. You get it, though. You get it. <laughs>